Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. It can often be really difficult for us to see beyond the moment. And this absolutely makes sense, right? I mean, when you're experiencing difficulty, when you are in the middle of a hardship, that's the most important thing in the world. And of course it is. But often when we get to the other side of those type of, type of experiences, we see that the storms that we faced were instrumental in shaping us and preparing us for what was on the horizon. Often those people who are closest to us have the ability to see what we are going through. While difficult is going to end up being the best for us in the long run. They are not in our shoes. And while they might empathize with us, they are able to view things in a completely different way. They are able able to see the big picture. In many ways, you and I have been able to have this perspective on the life of Jacob as we've been closing in on these last several chapters of Genesis. Not only do we know the whole story, because many of these stories are ones that we know quite well from back when we were in Sunday school, but as we've been digging into the passages, we have a different perspective than Jacob. We've been blessed to be able to follow the life of Joseph, and and we know that all along there was a bigger plan in place. We were able to see that. In addition, We can look back and think through how the book of Genesis, we've seen the faithfulness of God to His covenant people through the whole book. And also, we live in the reality of that same covenant faithfulness that has been shown to us because we have been given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is ultimately the fulfillment of all that we've been seeing. That's the big picture that the story of Scripture is painting For us. Now, after today, we have just two more chapters in the book of Genesis. And then we'll return to the Gospel of Luke. And while we have sort of reached the high point of the story of Jacob and Joseph, this is what we've been waiting for. They're being reunited. What we have left here in these final three chapters of Genesis are not merely ancillary details. They actually contain important information about the history of the people of God. But as we see the life of Jacob coming to a close, we also observe the good work that God has been doing in Jacob. Remember what a scoundrel he was? And as his life comes to a close, we see and we are reminded that God was at work in the life of Jacob this whole time. These stories aren't just about God keeping His covenant promises to His people. The process of all of this has also led to Jacob developing a trust in God. And instead of trying to do everything by his own power, he now trusts God to be faithful. Even beyond his earthly years, God was at work not only in the big picture of the story of redemption, that we see unfolding in Genesis and in all of Scripture, but he was also at work in the big picture of Jacob's life and in building his faith in this sure salvation that God has given to him.
Now this is a bit of an interesting passage. It tells us of the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. But we are going to break down this relatively simple story into uh, three marker points as we go through like we normally do. So the first thing that we see is that Jacob is ill. Now last week, we saw Jacob requesting that his bones be taken back to the land of Canaan to be buried with his ancestors. And Jacob there showed a faith where in God's providence, we saw that the hand of blessing was upon Jacob and his family. Well, this week we see that the end is in fact near and Jacob testifies to the faithfulness of God to him. Secondly, we see that Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph. While they are the sons of Joseph, we read that they are going to be honored as though they are his own sons, which means they have an inheritance as the children of Jacob. And finally, we see the faith of Jacob, even though he is in Egypt and is going to close his eyes for the last time. He believes that God will continue to keep his promise to his covenant people. And so we come to the first four chapters, uh, our first four verses of chapter 48. And as I mentioned, we got the idea that the death of Jacob is pending. We saw that last week, but this week we get told straight away that Jacob is ill. Now, we don't know how long this was from the time he made them promise that they would transport his bones back to the promised land. It just tells us that time has passed. And Joseph is made aware of the fact that his father is not well. And so after receiving this message, he does what any of us would do. He gets himself and his sons together, and they go to see Jacob. And we can pretty easily imagine this scene. The governor of Egypt, who likely is dressed for the part, with his two very Egyptian sons, well, they're going to see his Hebrew father as he's about to die. Now certainly, Joseph was raising his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But we have to remember, these were probably very Egyptian kids, right? We don't know how well they would have known their grandfather or how much time they have spent with him. Regardless, what we do know is how difficult situations such as this one are. Just in general. Regardless of how old you are, it is awkward. It is emotionally difficult to enter into the room of a loved one who is going to soon die. And even more so if you're the, you're the kids in tow, right? And as the story progresses, it's described to us in such a way that we can continue to easily imagine this whole scene. When Jacob is informed that Joseph has come, we read that Jacob summons his strength and sits up in bed. This is telling us something very important. Jacob sees this moment as vital. We are told this detail of him gathering his strength so that we understand that Jacob may well be on the verge of death, but he has something very, very important that he wants to say. And so we're drawn near to Jacob, right along with Joseph and the two kids that are with him. And we're wondering, right along with him, what could possibly be so important that he draws on his reserves of strength to share these words that we're about to read. And we find that what Jacob wants to do is to give testimony to what God has promised him. And we see that Jacob wants them to understand that this is a promise from God. 
This isn't his idea. And it isn't going to be accomplished by his power. And we, we can see that here, because we know he is in Egypt and he has barely had enough energy to speak these words, this is important. Even though he is about to die, he tells of how Almighty God appeared to him and how he blessed him. And this is a spectacular thing. You know, when we read the Bible, we're sort of used to the idea of people appearing to God, right? We kind of expect it, or God appearing to them. We expect it, but this is a spectacular thing. Who has interaction with the Almighty and lives to tell the story? And who has such a story as this where that same person is blessed by God? This is a unique thing that Jacob is talking about. The people who have had an experience like this that Jacob is talking about in the entirety of history are a tiny, 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 minuscule, beyond minuscule amount of people. And all of the stories about it are contained here. This is substantial, and it is rare. But something even more rare is also shared with Joseph and his sons. God has promised to make Jacob fruitful and multiply his family. Not only has God appeared to them, He's made a promise to them. That is a rare thing. And he's promised that they're going to be a great company of people. Now, we see this prediction that they're going to be a great company of people, and we know they become a great company of people because we know the story of Scripture well enough to know that part of the story. It's a past event to us. We know this has happened. You and I are long beyond it. We've seen the fulfillment. But let's take a minute to appreciate just how astounding this promise is that God made this promise to be, to be, cause God's, cause His people to be fruitful and to multiply. Okay. Jacob was one guy. He's one guy. Now we, we might think of this in our modern terms of a family being multiplied and think, ah, how difficult is that to accomplish? Just have a bunch of kids, every generation, and before you know it, you have scores of people. Why is this a big deal to be fruitful and to multiply? It happens all the time. Look at our families. I have a specific example. Just two weekends ago, we had a Rops family reunion. Uh, we went there. The offspring that came to that family reunion were mostly people from my great aunts and uncles down. We had one great aunt who's still alive and is still there. And just in that gathering, we had 150 people. Not bad, and not everyone was there. Not even close. See, being fruitful and multiplying ain't that hard. This promise from God isn't that big a thing, right? But let's think about the obstacles to this promise. Just the ones we see in the book of Genesis alone. Sarah was barren, but yet God promised to multiply them. Perhaps the promise to multiply a people could run into someone like Sarah and, and there's a barren wife or maybe there's an infertile man, right? Let's think about the mortality rate of infants in this time in history. It had to have been very low. Perhaps you or your family could, could have all kinds of kids, but they don't make it out of infancy. Then there were other obstacles that we see in the book of Genesis, perhaps your family could be overtaken by someone and 
you're all killed. Remember that that's what Jacob feared when he was going to meet up with Esau. Another obstacle to multiplying, to being a big family. He's worried he's going to be overtaken and people are going to be killed. Or maybe you and your family, of all things, could run into a famine. Could that happen? Oh, wait, that's why we're at this point in the book of Genesis. You're seeing all the obstacles to this promise and how it unfolded in the book of Genesis and how God was faithful through them. Now let's let's look ahead a little bit because we know the story. What if your people were taken into slavery and the people who had enslaved you decided to kill all the males? Oh wait, that's what happens in the book of Gen- a book of beginning of the book of Exodus. You get the idea. This promise from God is in jeopardy. Being fruitful and multiplying is not an easy thing. And Scripture makes that clear. You get my point. We assume an ease to this promise of being fruitful and multiplying, but we see in this early part of Scripture that it's not easy. And this is one of the biggest obstacles to the promise of God. And so we see that the beginning of Scripture, how often the intervention of God is required for this, that He might be faithful to make Jacob's family a great people. God's intervention is an essential part of this promise. And then there's the second part that Jacob talks about. That God will give Canaan to His people as an everlasting possession. This is also not easy. I mean, we look back and we think about Genesis again. We've seen all three of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis, they've all grown in power. They've all grown in their possessions. But have they possessed the land of Canaan? as God promised. They haven't taken possession of it. And now Jacob is out of it. And the idea we're meant to feel here is that this is a promise from God that He is going to have to do. It's going to have to be God. It ain't going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It isn't going to be a human endeavor. Jacob isn't going to do this himself. He is on the verge of death. And even the power of Joseph in Egypt right now is not going to guarantee that this happens. Because we're going to see later on in Scripture that it's going to require the power of the Almighty. It's not going to be accomplished through human effort. And so this is the testimony of Jacob here. He believes that this is going to come to pass. And that it's going to be God who is going to do it. God will bring you as we read later on in this passage. We see that he has great faith. And now he wants his family to look to this future promise. And we move on to verses 5 and 7. In this this part of the story, it explains something that you probably noticed at some point when you thought about the 12 tribes of Israel. You read through the 12 tribes as they are named in the Bible, and you have all the names that we've been hearing here in Genesis, right? You have Reuben, you have Simeon, you have Gad, you have Asher, you have Benjamin, and so on and so forth. But then then you realize, wait, we have all those interesting names, but the one name that we know more than any other name here in the book of Genesis, the son of, of Jacob, and probably the most common name among the names of the sons of Jacob, Joseph. He doesn't have a tribe. You name the 12 tribes of Israel, there isn't a tribe of Joseph. You go to the back of your Bible and you look at the maps and you look at it plotted out there on on Israel and you're like, there is no tribe of Joseph. 
I know I did that. Maybe I'm not the only one. Well, here we see why that is. Jacob promises that the first two sons of Joseph will be as his sons. And any sons Joseph has after Jacob came to Egypt will be considered the sons of Joseph. Now this whole thing is a little awkward as it kind of goes back to the whole reason we're here with Joseph in Egypt in the first place. Joseph was the favorite son. And now he's receiving the double blessing by having his two sons receive an inheritance as though Joseph's father was their father. But this isn't about favoritism for the oldest son of his beloved wife, Rachel, who died. We have to go back to some other stories several chapters back to be reminded of why the firstborn of Leah are not the ones receiving this inheritance. Notice what it says about those two sons, Reuben and and Simeon. So back earlier earlier in Genesis, we had an off mention of Reuben going into one of Jacob's concubines in chapter 35. And in chapter 34, Simeon was the main instigator of that whole incident. Remember that awkward incident where they slaughtered the men of Shechem after they were circumcised? That whole rape of Dina thing? That whole thing? Remember how Simeon was looked down upon for that? Well, suddenly the inclusion of those two stories in the book of Genesis makes a whole lot of sense because now we're finding out why Joseph is receiving this blessing. Now the ones who are receiving the double inheritance are the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's why, that's why we don't find Joseph on the Bible maps of the tribes of Israel at the, at the back of the Bible there. We find Ephraim and Manasseh instead. And we see Joseph seeing the two sons of, we see Jacob seeing the two sons of Joseph, and then he asks who they are here. This, this is an interesting story because you would think that he would be aware that they were there when he pronounces their inheritance, but we read that he can't see. And so what happens is interesting. Joseph tries to make sure that the two children get to the correct spot for the blessing. He wants Manasseh, the firstborn, to receive the blessing. So he walks with him on the left that the right hand of blessing of Jacob might land on Manasseh. And then the old guy who doesn't know what's going on tries to bless him like this, right? You can see the frustration in Joseph. You can understand the frustration that he has here. Like, no, old guy, you got it wrong. Uncross your hands. But what does Jacob do? He instead says, no, I meant to do this. And we can appreciate this a lot. Because throughout Genesis, it has not been the firstborn that has received the blessing, right? We had Esau being the firstborn, but Jacob gets the blessing. Really? Ishmael was the firstborn, but the blessing came through Sarah's child, Isaac, the secondborn. And so we have this here once again. But we see that this ultimately isn't the blessing of Jacob. It's the blessing of God. It is what God is going to do through His people. And we see this scene, and we think about this truth of the blessing that God is going to do these things through His covenant people. And as the passage closes up, we see a declaration beyond anything that that Jacob's belief in the faithfulness of God, what he thought it would be. Because he's now looking beyond his earthly life. He's thinking beyond the moment. We had a Jacob early on in Genesis 
who was scheming to get the blessing for himself, but now he's more concerned about the people who come beyond him. He has grown in faith. He understands it's not just about him getting the blessing. The blessing that he got the birthright from Esau, that he and his mother snuck around to get the blessing from Isaac. He wanted the blessing in the moment. But now what is he doing? He's looking beyond the moment. He's looking at the big picture. He's trusting in the faithfulness of God beyond his own generation. And we see in verses 21 and 22 that Jacob acknowledges his frail state and his proximity to death. And we find once again that all of what has been happening in this chapter is about how much Jacob now trusts God. Because he knows he's going to die. God made a promise to him. He told us that that promise. But he isn't lying on his deathbed whining about how hard his life was and how he isn't going to get what's coming to him. Like I said, of all the people that we've met in Genesis, you would think that the biggest scoundrel Jacob would be complaining about how he didn't get what he was promised. But instead, he's now a big picture guy. He understands. And notice what he says here. God will be with you and will bring you to the land of your fathers. Now we know that God was good on this promise, but it didn't happen in Joseph's lifetime or in Ephraim and Manasseh's lifetime. It didn't even happen in their children's lifetime. But we know that God still kept His promises. God is faithful to His people. He is God and He cannot lie. He cannot break His promises. And He is also God, and His ways are not our ways. He is God. And He directs history that He might bring salvation to His people and bring glory to Himself. And so with the words of Jacob to Joseph here, we see the faith of Jacob that God will do what He's promised. Just as God has been with Jacob for His good, even in the hardships of His life, God will be with His people and bring them where He has promised them they will be. And as we think about this truth, we learn an important application for our lives. There are many times in our lives where we might look at what we are experiencing and wonder why we are enduring this present moment. Why can't God just zap things and give us the easy path? And the joy that we want, that thing that we desire. Why are things hard for us when we trust in Him and things so easy for those we see in the world who reject Him? Well, we know that His ways are not our ways. God is at work in all things for His people. And in considering the life of Jacob, which we will see come to a close next week in chapter 49, Jacob could have easily been the firstborn and had the blessing just by his birthright. Just could have been born that way. Could have easily happened that way. His father also could have believed what God told his wife, Rachel. That the younger will be served by the older. And Isaac could have given Jacob the blessing because God wanted it that way. Could have happened that way. He could have also easily gotten the wife that he desired immediately and not had to work seven more years after being deceived. 
Jacob could also have not been forced to grieve his wife and have lost her. He also could have had the situation where maybe his son wasn't taken from him into slavery in Egypt. God could have easily given him the promised land and said, here is this. It all could have been easy. But God had a different plan in mind. In the suffering and in the difficulty, God was most glorified because it made things abundantly clear that He was the one who was at work. In the life of Abraham, the birth of Isaac to a barren woman in her 90s showed us that God was the one who keeps the promise. He was the one who brings life. Jacob wrestled with God and and received a limp for his efforts. And that would have made Jacob seem weak and old beyond his actual physical years. It would have made him slow. But it also makes it abundantly clear that God would do things in His timing. And God would be the one who would work to win victory for Jacob. God could have easily made it rain wherever Jacob decided to go during this famine. That would have been easy. The rest of the world is starving, Jacob. Here's rain for you and your people and your livestock. But instead, God orchestrated a plan that only He could accomplish by bringing Joseph to power in Egypt. And as we think about God's ultimate big picture, the salvation of a people for Himself, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we look to the cross. And we understand that it's through suffering that God brings salvation. This isn't just the story of the cross and the resurrection though, right? It's pointed to in all the difficulties we see in Genesis and in other parts of Scripture. When we see the big picture of redemption, we understand that we are not a people who can save ourselves. We need the divine rescue from God. We need God's work and not our own. And we also see this in this transformation that we've seen in Jacob. Only God can bring about this change in him where he says, God will bring you. This is a man who tried to do everything on his own. Just a few chapters back, and now what is he saying to the people beyond his years? God will bring you. What an amazing statement of faith and trust to Joseph of all people. The son who has the power to get an army together and take over the promised land. He could have probably done it. Gathered Pharaoh's armies, taken possession of the land. We have it. But Jacob tells Joseph, God will bring you. It won't be by my power. It won't be by your power. It won't be the power of the Egyptian armies. God will bring you. And so as we consider our lives and our difficulties, may you and I remember the life of Joseph and the life of Jacob, and particularly with Jacob. May we remember the changes that God worked in his life. May we desire to let the Word of God and the Holy Spirit shape and form us that we might live lives of holiness even in the times of difficulty, understanding that He is shaping us and forming us just like He was with Jacob. That we might not rest on ourselves, but instead trust that God will bring us. And so may we do this, that His name might receive glory, honor, and praise in all the earth. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.